Church, would you join me as I pray this morning? Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather and worship together as a family this morning. And we praise you this morning because you are faithful to all of your promises. We praise you that you have the power to ensure that not a word of your promises ever falls to the ground. We praise you that even when men seek in their evil to obstruct your plans, you use their evil to bring about your plans to fulfillment. We praise you that we can have complete confidence in all of your promises, including the promise that one day we will see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face in glory. Father, we praise you that we can, that you make your promises to those who don't deserve them. And then we can lay hold of them and, and trust in you, knowing that you will fulfill them. And so we bring these requests to your throne this morning. We think of places outside of our country. And we ask the God of peace and justice that you would end the violence in Israel and Palestine. You would step in and stop this hatred and war that's been ravaging these people. And would you broker peace between both sides so that lives would be saved? And we ask for peace and strength for the leaders in these countries, but also for wisdom and humility to navigate these difficulties. And would you strengthen believers there to be resolute with the gospel as they endure this chaos? Or do you tell us that we should pray for those in authority? And so we pray for our United States Supreme Court. And we long for the day when you will make all things right. When perfect justice will be meted out. And every broken thing will be fixed. When the entire creation will function the way it was made to function. Lord, may that day come quickly. Until then... Please send grace, free, undeserved help and intervention and strength and protection. We pray for our judges, John Roberts, Brett Kavanaugh, Sonia Sotomayor, Clarence Thomas, Helena Kagan, Neil Gorsuch, Samuel Alitao, Stephen Breyer, and Amy Coney Barrett. And we ask that you would give them wisdom and insight. Give them courage to stand with truth over and against the lies of this world. Give them discernment that only comes from you. God, we thank you also for other local churches in our area, and we ask that you would bless the ministry of Chapel Church in Puyallup. Thank you that we had the privilege yesterday to join with them, our ladies, in a conference about prayer, and they pray that you would bring fruit from that time. We thank you for beginning a good work in, in this church and the believers there, and ask that you would continue to grow them and their knowledge and their love of you. God, we ask that you would strengthen this body of believers with your word. I ask that their leadership team of Phil Spagnola and Jonathan McNichol and Myron Sorgenfree and Mark Bethune and Pastor Stephen Brucker would remind themselves and each other of this glorious gospel that allows them to serve you and to serve one another in that church. And I do pray for Pastor Stephen that he would speak boldly and accurately from the scriptures as he preaches Psalm 133 this morning. May you be honored and glorified in their midst. And Father, we turn to our own church family and we ask that as a church we would know your blessings. We pray that we would see clear evidence that you are at work here. Let us see that evidence in ways we relate to one another. I pray that we would be people marked by an obvious sacrificial love for one another. I pray that we would hold loosely instead of tightly to the things that you have given to us, remembering that each gift is a gift from you, and our time, and our money, and our homes, and our possessions. I pray that we would always be both willing and ready to share with those in need, to be a blessing to them. Let us not love only in our thoughts and our words, God, but in our actions. Help us to be imitators of Jesus Christ in the way that he loved us. And Father, let us see clear evidence that you are at work, not only in the way we relate to one another, but also in the way we relate to others who do not know you. People in this neighborhood, 
people in our classes at school and offices at work, people in our families. We pray that we would live before them in such a way that they see our good works and give glory to you. We pray that we would not only live a Christian life before them, but speak the Christian gospel to them so that they too would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And we ask, we beg God that you would add to our number week by week, month by month, those who are being saved. We do pray for Pastor Ryan as he discerns his future. God, we ask that you give him and Carly grace and strength to wait upon you for the next steps. May they continue to trust in you. God, we think of those in our church that need strength as they battle cancer. We pray for those that are striving for peace in their families. We pray for those that are experiencing loneliness. Help us as a church family to minister to them all. And if we're to live in these ways, we need to be filled with your word. We will need to, to know it and to obey it. And so as we prepare to open it and read it and hear it preached to us, we ask that you would help us to listen humbly and attentively, that we would listen expectantly and prayerfully, that you'd use your word both to confront and comfort us, to call us away from sin and toward holiness. And we pray that we would be changed by your word. That is our desire. That's our prayer. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. As you're turning there. And we look at a very uh, well-known passage this morning. I ask, if you were on your way to an important function and saw someone in trouble, a stranger, would you stop and help them? Would a serious situation for a stranger interrupt your agenda for the day? What if you were running late? Would you still be compelled to stop? Well, inspired by this parable here this morning in our passage, Princeton social psychologist John Darley and Dan Batson conducted an interesting experiment in the 1970s on time pressure and helpful behavior. They studied how students of the Princeton Theological Seminary conducted, conducted themselves when they were asked to deliver a sermon, and on the way they were coming across a needy person. And the passage they were given to prepare to preach on was the parable of the Good Samaritan. The students were given, were to give the, the sermon in a studio, a building across campus, and would be evaluated by their supervisors and how they handled the text. And the researchers were curious about whether time pressure would affect the seminary students' helpful nature. After all, these were students who were being trained to become ordained ministers, and they're presum presumably inclined to help other people. And as each student finalized his preparation in the classroom, the researchers inflicted an element of time constraint upon them by giving them one of three instructions. Some received this. You're late. They were expecting you a few minutes ago. You'd better hurry. It shouldn't take but just a minute to get there. These were the high hurry condition. Another group were given this. The, the studio assistant is ready for you, so please go right over. And this was an intermediate hurry condition. And last, some were given this. It'll be a few minutes before they're ready for you, but you might as well head on over. If you have to wait over there, it shouldn't be long. And this was a low hurry condition. As each student walked by himself from the preparation classroom to the studio to preach, he encountered a victim in a deserted alleyway, just like the wounded traveler in our passage this morning. The victim, though, was an associate of the experimenters, appeared destitute, was slouched and coughing, and clearly need of some assistance. The point, each of these seminary students were given the opportunity to practice what they were about to preach. Researchers were interested in determining their imposed time pressure, how it affected these seminarians in their response to the distressed stranger. They found that only 10% of students in the high hurry situation actually stopped to help the victim. 45% of the students in the intermediate hurry situation and 63% of the students in the lower hurry situation. 
So 90% of students who are in the greatest rush wouldn't stop to help the stranger. A researcher concluded a person not in a hurry may stop and offer help to a person in distress. A person in, in a hurry is likely to keep going, though. Ironically, he is likely to keep going even if he's hurrying to speak about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Thinking about and preparing about the Good Samaritan did not increase helping behavior, but being in a hurry decreased it. I wonder how many of us would have done the similar. I don't think this experiment had any spiritual merit to it, but it could identify on us deficiencies that we really didn't realize we had. Even in our days, though, in biblical illiteracy, where so many people don't know the simplest and most basic content of the Bible, Jesus' parable on the Good Samaritan is most widely known in our world. You recognize that? Most people know this story. I mean, if you live in Puyallup, we have a hospital named after this story. But most people don't fully understand the point of the parable, of why Jesus shares this. I pray that we can understand it better this morning. So let me ask a few questions as we, to whet your appetite before we dive in. Do we have limits on our mercy for others? Do we have limits on our mercy for others? Is mercy optional? Do we lack love for others that are different than us? Are we hesitant to be helpful when it's inconvenient? If we answered yes to any of these, what does that tell us about our relationship with God? And so here's the main idea. Here's the, the, the one sentence that uh, hopefully encapsulates all of what I'm going to share this morning. So if you write anything down, write this down. Loving God means that we cannot place limits on who we must love as our neighbor. Loving God means that we cannot place limits on who we must love as our neighbor. That's the main point this morning. So it should be on the screen. It is. If you haven't already, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. I'm going to read the passage first. And we're going to look at verses 25 through 37, just encapsulating this parable of the Good Samaritan. Starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii. And gave them to the innkeeper and saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So I have three points this morning, three questions that I'm going to ask in my outline. So here's the first one. What does it take to be saved? Verses 25 through 29. What does it take to be saved? We do need to be reminded uh, that Luke is writing an orderly account, right? You remember in chapter 1, so that, so that we may have certainty concerning the things that we've been taught. So he's writing an orderly account. We have to keep this in mind because these aren't haphazard stories just thrown in together. He wasn't just thinking from one thing to the next, oh, this sounds great. No, he's writing something for us to understand, an orderly account so that we can understand who Christ is and his impact on the world. Luke is careful with his work. And there is a reason that this story follows the sending out of the 72 that we looked at last week. And Jesus is turning towards Jerusalem and he's walking through Samaria. We don't know if this encounter with a law expert happened directly after the 72 return, but he sure does seem to have be holding up this, this law expert as as same of those who are wise and understanding that we see in verse 21. 
So this story is carefully selected to follow this, this, uh, the sending of the 72 and right before Mary and Martha and the rest of the chapter. And as we come to verse 25, Luke writes that a law expert stood up in public to question Jesus. Sometimes those who have the most knowledge lack the most experience in living out what they say to be true. Verse 25, behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? In Israel, to be a lawyer, a religious lawyer, was to be an expert in God's law. He's, he's a biblical scholar, a theologian. And this lawyer might have been thinking something like this. Here is a false teacher who shows little respect for the necessity of obeying the law of God, so I'm going to corner him now. And he seems to be more concerned with critiquing Jesus than having confidence of his own eternal life. Eternal life isn't so much a passion of his soul, but a hot topic of debate. And he uses the word inherit, which means to receive something. And he wants to be sure that his future will have eternal life in it. He believes, though, that he's locked in, that he's good to go. And he questions Jesus to assure himself and to corner Jesus. But Jesus knows him and his heart, and he answers in verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And then the, the lawyer quotes the, the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus shockingly responds in verse 28, you have answered correctly. Now do this, and you will live. You can imagine the shock, though, from him. He was probably not expecting that response from Jesus. And, and the spiritual logic of the, of the Shema is clear. You must first love God with all that is in you. And if you do, you'll be able to love others as you love yourself. Love for God produces love for other people. But does it secure salvation for this one? The lawgiver's, the lawgiver in, in Christ answers this man's question. Do this and you will live. And he's saying, obey these two commands that you know that you have been reciting every day of your life, and you'll have eternal life. It's truly a brilliant response by Jesus. He knows all things. He can surmise what this man is thinking and his motives and how he's woefully trying to trap him, and he uses the thing that the man supposedly is really good at, the law, against his own heart. Jesus doesn't manipulate the law here. He doesn't make it say something it doesn't say. He just exposes for us the problem with moralism. The idea that you can achieve God's salvation by your good works in your moral life. And he exposes those gaping holes. Jesus holds up that moral life and he shows him the fatal flaw of trying to work your way to heaven. Friends, it cannot be done. In effect, Jesus is saying... Have you actually looked at the kind of righteous life that all those specific laws are really after? Have you seen what kind of life God really wants from you? Do you love God with every, every fiber of your being, every minute of the day? Do you meet the needs of your neighbor with joy and energy and attentiveness with which you meet your own needs? That is the kind of life you owe God. That's the kind of life you will other fellow human beings. Knowledge of what God requires is not enough for obedience to the law. He would need to show perfection in action to be accepted and to keep doing it. And Jesus uses the present tense, do this. If, if you're going to live by the law to get to eternal life, you need to do it perfectly. That's the only way. And can any one of us truly claim to love God with heart and soul, strength and mind completely? Do you see all the alls listed there? You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. Can any of us do this with consistency and can do it completely? Friend, if you want to have eternal life through the law, you have to obey this way, perfectly. And that's what Jesus is preaching here. So if you read the Bible to say that you today in 2021 need to obey all of the food laws, you need to do that perfectly. Not, not just trying, 
Not just attempting to do your best, but you need to be perfect. If, if you want to seek justification through the Ten Commandments, you need to follow the letter of the law to its ex- exact jot and tittle, perfectly. You can't just try. You can't just make attempts. You have to do it perfectly. But friend, I have to be utterly honest with you this morning. You will fail. In fact, you already failed today. What a happy message to come to this morning, right? (laughs) And the first point, to love the Lord your God, you've already failed before you got here this morning. How? Because you didn't love God with all of your heart. Instead, your heart has been focused on yourself. Even for just a split second this morning. You failed because you didn't love God with all your soul. Because you thought even for the briefest of moments, what your soul really needs is rest. What your soul really needs is a vacation, preferably in Hawaii. What your soul really needs is change and renewed energy. You failed this morning because your strength wasn't solely dedicated to God. Instead, you had to give strength to yourself and to your family to get up, to get ready, to come to worship. You had to give strength to your, to your own body to just be here. You failed already this morning because your mind has not been solely focused on God. No, your mind's been flooded with the what-ifs of this week or the what-abouts that happened last week. And anxiety has now slipped into your mind. And your mind's been consumed with work and family and your physical needs or that show that you really like on YouTube or fill in the blank. You and I have failed this morning. And we failed every single day that we have lived. The law of God offers salvation to anyone who fully satisfies its demands. But who is able to do it? No one, not one person, except the sinless Son of God. That's why the scriptures say, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in its sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. So in other words, we can never be saved by keeping the law, not because there's anything wrong with the law, but because there's something deeply wrong with us. That's why we have those books in the Old Testament. That's why it's important in in a yearly Bible reading plan to read the Old Testament, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy that just seem like it's boring. It's there to show us as we read that the law is perfect and good, but we are far from it. We, will, we were never able to obey the law perfectly. So why did God give the law? It needed to be achieved perfectly, but God knew that you and I could never do it. In fact, just read the Old Testament with that in mind. God's people try and fail. They try and fail. And God knew this, and he patiently observes and waits all those years and all those attempts to try to justify ourselves. But there was always a rescue coming. Ever since Genesis 3 in the garden, there was one who would come to make all things new. It would be one who would come to live perfectly. And our lives have have been all about rejection. Rejecting God, rejecting his way. And yet God in his love and grace sends himself. We need someone who lived a life perfectly before God. We need Jesus. But the lawyer doesn't see that. And Jesus is so kind to show him that he ultimately was powerless to fulfill the law. But the lawyer wasn't having it. Jesus is seeking to convict this man of his sin, the impossibility of self-salvation by using the law that he knew very much about to show him his need. But the lawyer refused this self-inspection. He just wanted a way out. He, He wanted to remove the conviction that he felt in his heart. And so he says in verse 29, desiring to justify himself, who is my neighbor? 
seems the, the first question shows that he considers himself to be able to do something in order to inherit eternal life. But his second question shows clearly the desire for self-justification that lies at the core of his religious establishment. And the reason why these religious teachers hated Jesus. He knew he couldn't do it. And this man was controlled by a desire to justify himself. The word justify here means to vindicate himself. Perhaps he was seeking clarification that would allow him to feel confident about about where he stood now. The lawyer wanted to show himself to be righteous all on his own. He didn't want to have any assistance of divine grace. So he, he seeks to trick Jesus again by asking him a clarifying question about the identity of his neighbor. And the implication is clear. He he wanted to soften the demand on himself and not feel the sense of obligation to respond. He wanted some help from Jesus so that he could spot the people that he needed to be neighbors to. So he could prove that he loves them too. And if only he could find a way to limit the size of his neighborhood, then maybe, just maybe, he could really love his neighbor just like the law demands. And he could justify himself all by himself before God. And his question before Jesus is just plain foolish. He should have asked Jesus, how can I find eternal life if someone like me has failed to love God and failed to love my neighbor properly? And if he had asked honestly, Jesus would have responded with good news. Instead, the man just wants to justify himself all by himself. He is a good lawyer. He wants to save face. He wants the lines of God's law to be more tightly defined so that he could show Jesus just how much work that he has put into securing his spot in the afterlife. And it sure seems natural for people to think this way, right? Most people in the world think that there is something that they must do in order to receive God's approval. But friends, as I've said, the law says you must obey perfectly. And if we do it perfectly, and if we can't and we we won't, we are doomed to hell. And the lawyer, it seems, was smart enough to see that in himself. He saw that perfectly loving God and loving neighbor was impossible all by himself. He was guilty and he knew it and he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to deflect He wanted to remove the target. And so he asked, who are the ones I'm to love? And who are the ones that I can ignore? And Jesus is going to tell a story that changes the question from what kind of person is my neighbor to what kind of person am I? And he changes the question from what status of people are worthy of my love to how can I become the kind of person whose compassion disregards status? So that's the first question. Second, how do we respond to those in need? And Jesus gives this parable. The lawyer's question was telling of his spiritual life. He is saying, surely I don't have to love and meet the needs of everyone, do I? I mean, Jesus, let's be reasonable here. We, we all know there are people who, who are less fortunate, but how far do we really have to go? Do we really have to love everyone? Where do you draw the line? What about tyrants? What about blasphemers? And Jesus, who is my neighbor? I mean, you don't, you don't mean, Jesus, that we have to open up ourselves to, to everyone, just anyone. I mean, I'm, I'm not good at that type of work. I mean, there are more compassionate people than myself. I have a busy schedule I attend and and very active at my church. In fact, I I pay taxes. Shouldn't the government do this type of work? I mean, mean, it's their problem, right? You can imagine all the questions that would roll through his mind. Perhaps they've rolled through your mind. In other words, he's, he's saying, Jesus, this isn't so easy. Life is complicated. So so which kind of people do I have to love? Who qualifies for being a neighbor in this command? Love your neighbor. Is it every race? Is it every age? Is it every gender? Even transgender? 
And homosexuals, do they qualify Jesus? Who exactly is my neighbor? And who exactly do I get a pass on? Who can I exclude? Jesus replies, verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when we pause there, I wonder if the listeners' stomachs would have seized up as they heard this because they would know that something is bad about to happen. The road to Jericho was steep and dangerous, so dangerous, in fact, they called it the bloody way. So this man is going down from Jerusalem, and he says, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. There's three travelers here that see the wounded man, but only the Samaritan has compassion on him. Three characters chosen perfectly by Jesus. The priest. The priest would minister in the temple and represented the height of piety. And the Levite. The Levite was a temple servant, but responsible for much less than the priest. Both would have been very concerned for their personal ceremonial cleanliness. And we should not be too quick to look down on these two men or we will discover as we sit here this morning that we are actually convicting ourselves. But you do, do you know what else it implies that these two men were coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho? Do you want to guess why it's even more wicked? Because most surely they were coming from Jerusalem where they went to worship. They were just leaving church, guys. They had just left God's people heading out for Sunday lunch. Rejoicing about who God is. Just like us singing about it. Praying to him. Fellowshipping with God's people. And they see the dying man on the road and they pass by. A priest is like an elder pastor. Walking by this half dead man. And the Levites like a Sunday school or deacon. Leaders in the church. They actually see him coming from a distance so much that they deliberately cross over to the other side of the road. So I guess it's true. Sometimes those that have the most knowledge of God lack the most experience in living out what they believe to be true. The Samaritan represented a socially inferior, religiously impure, and ethically despised race. The Samaritans opposed the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and constructed their own place of worship. And the Jews hated them. And they didn't hide it. These people to them were unclean, socially outcast, and religiously heretics. The Samaritan were the very opposite of the lawyer, as well as the priest and the Levite. The Samaritan and Jews were bitter enemies. It's not just that the Jews hated them. The Samaritans hated the Jews. Jews seen them as half-breeds. For Jews, Samaritans were the kind of people that you would hope fire would rain down from heaven. Did we see that anywhere in the text? In chapter 9? That's how they viewed Samaritans. And by depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus found the most forceful way to say that anyone in need, regardless of race, or politics, or class, 
or gender, or lifestyle, and religion, anyone is your neighbor. Anyone. Friend, the transgender person that causes you to be afraid is your neighbor. The homosexual couple that lives in your neighborhood that you avoid is your neighbor. The strange person is stranger than you that you think has made all sorts of poor life decisions. They are your neighbor. All of them. All of them are our neighbors. I mean, the question has been asked of this parable, why did the first two religious people keep walking on either side? Many have suggested scenarios from fear of becoming unclean, from touching a corpse because if they weren't sure if they were dead or not, to hesitation of helping someone who may be a sinner, to even understandable fear of being robbed themselves. But maybe... Maybe they just were in a hurry, like the seminary students in my introduction. And it would have been costly, costing time and energy and money to stop. Perhaps it would cost them their status. What if someone else walked by and saw them helping them, saw them talking to them? These poor examples of religious leaders show us some characteristics of bad neighbors. And when are we bad neighbors? Very simply, when we avoid people who are in obvious need. When we have little or no concern for those who are wounded and dying, whether injustices are spiritual or physical. We are bad neighbors when we see someone in trouble and we won't stop. We won't seek to help. When we're too selfish to interrupt our tasks, to be inconvenienced by someone else's problems. We're bad neighbors when we refuse to be a good neighbor to someone in need, no matter who that neighbor may be. Very simply, friends, we are bad neighbors when we forget our salvation. That's the key. We're bad neighbors when we forget our salvation. Charles Spurgeon preached this entire passage in one sermon, which was not normal for him. Usually he would preach a verse or two, but he preached the whole parable. And in it, he imagined the excuses that men might have for these two religious men to, to refuse to help. And he listed some of the possibilities. And as he was preaching this, he noticed his members smiling at the absurdity of the failure of these two. And so he pastorally chastised them mid-sermon. He says, I quote, I shall leave you to make all the excuses you like about not helping the poor and aiding the hospitals. And when you have made them... They will be as good as those which I have set before you. You have smiled over what the priest might have said. But if you make any excuses for yourselves, whenever real need comes before you and you are able to relieve it, you need not smile over your excuses. The devil will do it for you. You'd better cry over that. For there is the gravest reason for lamenting that your heart is hard toward your fellow creatures when they're sick and perhaps sick unto death. What kind of neighbor are you? Are you a neighbor to strangers like the Samaritan? The point of this parable seems to, to be done to expose the sin in the heart of the lawyer who had convinced himself that he had done everything to justify himself before God. He sought to justify himself by, by limiting the law's requirements, making it easily achievable, and also trying to promote his own righteousness. How was the Samaritan a neighbor? Jesus describes six concrete, compassionate actions that this Samaritan does. First, he walks up to him. Second, he binds his wounds. This would have cost him something because he probably would have taken his own intact clothing and, and ripped it to make bandages. 
And as he binds his wounds, third, he anoints the cuts with oil and wine. Oil would soothe the wound and wine would disinfect it. Fourth, he loads the man on his own mule, which probably meant at that point that he wouldn't ride, he would walk from here on out. Fifth, he takes him to an inn. And sixth, he secures room and board and comfort for the man that he just met. And he doesn't dump and run. Instead, he's coming back and will settle accounts if there's more charges. Jesus says he took out two denarii, two days' wages. Probably around $300. As a neighbor, the Samaritan did everything he could for this broken stranger. It cost him something. And the Samaritan did this for his enemy. Some of us might say, I have enough problems of my own to help someone else. But what we are saying is that we cannot help someone without burdening ourselves, cutting into how we want to live our lives. But friend, that's what biblical love looks like. We should be willing to suffer with them and take their burden on ourselves. Some also say, well, those people brought it on themselves. It's their own fault they're suffering. And we all want to help kind-hearted, upright people whose poverty came upon them through no foolishness on their own and who respond with love and appreciation when we step out to serve him. But no one like that exists. There are no perfect sufferers. Friends, there are some in our world who continually lack the ability to manage the affairs of their life well. In other words, there are people who persistently make sincere but very bad decisions about their money and possessions. And what should we do with them? Is mercy optional? Is mercy optional when we know that they're just going to screw up again? We are sometimes prone to deal with people in ways that are not logical when we consider how royally screwed up we are before God. Does God treat us that same way? You know, God found us in the same condition spiritually as this man on the road. Our spiritual bankruptcy was due our sin. It was all our fault. And yet Jesus came and gave us what we needed. When Jesus came into our dangerous world, he came down our road. And though we were his enemies... He was moved to compassion for our plight. And he came to us and he saved us, not merely at the risk of his own life, as in the parable of the Samaritan, but at the cost of his own life. And on the cross, Jesus paid the debt that we could never pay. Jesus is the greater Samaritan to whom this story points to. But before we can give this type of neighbor love to others, we need to receive it. Only when you see and believe that you've been graciously saved by someone who owes you the very opposite will you go into the world looking to be a neighbor to others. And once you receive this ultimate radical neighbor love through Jesus Christ, we can begin to be this type of neighbors to other people. So friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, you need to turn to Jesus. And you need to repent of your sins and believe in him. Because Jesus is the only way.
Well, Jesus ends this discussion with the lawyer. And he asked, my third question is, who is your neighbor? Verse 36. Jesus asked him, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. How does the lawyer respond to the question of verse 36? Well, he can't even utter the name of the one who helped. He can't even allow himself to say the Samaritan. He just responds, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus in this parable is asking the listeners to imagine themselves to be the victim of violence, dying with no hope if this one doesn't come and stop and help. How would you want the Samaritan to act if it was you lying on the road or someone you love very dearly? Wouldn't you want him to be a neighbor to you to step across racial or religious barriers? Of course you would. You'd be thinking about all that you would lose, your spouse, your kids, your job, your life. And you would think, if only someone could come and help, if only someone could come and stop, and you wouldn't care who they were. This lawyer here didn't need some fresh knowledge. He didn't need some clever arguments. He didn't need heavy guilt. He needed a new heart. And Jesus gave him no answer to his question, who is my neighbor? Instead, he says, go become a new kind of person. Go get a compassionate heart. Rather than letting him get away with keeping the issue at arm's length, Jesus brought it straight to bear in his heart. What kind of neighbor are you? Who is it that you refuse to love? And do you need a new heart? This parable is an important one for us. Us as American Christians have our faith plastered all over our clothes, our cars, our homes. We claim that we actually know Jesus. We claim that Christ is in us and that we're in him. We claim that though we were once spiritually dead, God has regenerated us, giving us a new heart, a new life. We claim to have Jesus, the only person who has ever fully loved God with all of his being and his neighbor as himself. But I hope as we've listened this morning, if we really do have Christ within us, we will seek to be loving and merciful to our neighbors, to all of our neighbors. Jesus stated this so clearly in the Sermon on the Mount is to help us to remember, blessed are the merciful, for you shall receive mercy. He wasn't saying that we can earn God's mercy by performing mercy. But he was telling us that those who are truly God's children are the objects of his mercy, and they will be merciful to others. Showing mercy to one's neighbor is evidence of receiving mercy. The Bible's call to love our neighbors as ourselves gives us a way of testing our relationship with God. Friends, this story of the Samaritan is, is not given to us as a new example to follow but to expose our lovelessness and to lead us to repentance. This parable should not be preached to us in our hearts that we have more duties now, but it's there to reveal to us that we have never and we will never meet these duties. We need Jesus. Friend, are you still wanting to depend your eternity on how you perform in this world? 
Are you still interested in justifying yourself before God? Or are you ready this morning to admit that you cannot earn your way to heaven by your moral life? Today is a day of salvation. Christian, what kind of person are you? Does compassion rise in your heart for those that are different? For those that are strange to you? This passage is not a call to perfection. Only Jesus can do this perfectly. Only he can love God fully and his neighbor as himself. Only Jesus is consistently merciful to everyone. But this passage is a wake-up call to us to consider if we, in our relationships, in our life, do we show that we truly love God? Are we merciful? Are we truly compassionate with others? If not, are we ready to grow and follow Jesus in this? Are we ready to commit to a church family and to help each other follow Jesus in this world? How we relate to others is shorthand for how we relate to God. And I pray that we would spend some time today, this morning, considering our lives and may that self-examination drive us to Jesus in his ever-abiding grace. So friends, I'm going to pray in a moment. But I think it's wise for us to spend just a few moments silently reflecting on this passage and then I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. Father, we are struck by your word this morning. And we pray that it would penetrate deeply into our hearts, into our lives. Father, I thank you of how pertinent and reliable and relevant your word is to us. And that you continue to teach us and guide us in all truth. And we ask that you would help us to take your word that we've heard this morning, that we've read, and that we would apply it to our lives. Father, may we realize this morning those neighbors in our lives that we have ignored, and even those neighbors that we have deep-seated anger towards. And God, I ask that you would humble us to love them. God, I ask that you would help us to see them as you see them and to minister to them as you give us opportunities. Father, we ask that you would help us to be faithful in this world with your gospel. Help us to love you with our lives. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.